Hello everyone and welcome to the sixth episode of Tomorrow Never Knows podcast, the podcast for women who know things and women who want to know things. And men who want to listen to women who know things. Yes. Uh, my name is Charlotte Lydia Riley. And I'm Emma London and uh, this is the second part of our women and health special. So in the last episode we talked quite um, ramblingly <laughs> about various uh, chronic um and short-term illnesses, how um, having health issues impacts various people in their lives and work situations. This episode, we're going to be a bit more specific and talk a lot about um, actual women's bodies and health. There's going to be pregnancy, menstruation, hormones, Mm -hmm. all sorts of things. Um, So where do we start? Um, The language around uh, women's health. It's often focused on reproduction, isn't it? Reproductive health. Yes. Um, And, you know, there are all kinds of assumptions bound up with that. The idea that women, that all women are capable of reproducing. Yes. The idea that all women want to have children Mm -hmm. or are planning to have children at some point. The idea that having children is um, something that concerns only women, Mm. um, I think, as well. You do quite a lot of work on, or a lot of your work comes into Mm. the brackets of women's bodies because you work on international development and the history of it. So what can you tell us about that? So I, uh, a couple of summers ago, went to the Rockefeller Archive in upstate New York and I was looking there at the Population Council Mm. documents. And what's really interesting about the Population Council is that it's founded by uh, John D. Rockefeller III in just, just after the Second World War, I think. And he's really concerned with overpopulation. He has mm. this, you know, anxiety that there are too many people, particularly in the developing world. And so he he founds this organisation uh, based on the idea of um, population control in quite a eugenic in fashion. quite a eugenicy fashion, which um, yeah, absolutely about you know enabling people to control the size of their families to to have population control and so population and also i mean enabling a certain kind of family yeah absolutely and of course a lot of these anxieties about population control are about this kind of terrifying global south mm. and how they're all having lots of children and, and how awful this will be for the world but the um and so that kind of morphs into family planning and family planning tends to be um is often associated with um men apart from anything. you know it, it's men having um, control over their families and the number of children. And what actually happens quite slowly, but does happen to the Population Council, is it shifts from being about family planning to women's rights and reproductive justice. Mm. And so the idea shifts from um, being about sort of this quite abstract sense of controlling how many children people have to women having specific control over their own reproductive destiny. Mm. So women being able to access contraception, safe contraception, reliable contraception, women being able to access abortion, although obviously this kind of is more or less controversial depending on who you are and where you are. And And who funds the project. Well, exactly, and obviously the United States every so often just completely defunds all of its abortion provision around the world, um, as it has, you know, most recently under Donald Trump. And uh, Sweden and Canada are stepping up to cover mm. um, the funds. They're putting money where the US is removing it. That's also, you know, how to <laughs> how to export your country's values around the world. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I'm interested in the 
I'm, you know, part of my work is about this focus on women's reproductive justice and women's ability to access abortion and contraception. Um, and I'm also interested specifically in the work that the Depart- the British Department for International Development does on this, and, and particularly perhaps in the way that narratives around um, the development programmes aimed at women always have to be aimed at women and girls. Mm. You have to couple it like that. It has to be women and girls. And, and that's one of my kind of big irritations with development policy, that women are too alarming and terrifying to funding development funding bodies to just be targeted as individuals women are assumed to have more in common with children than with other adults Mm. and that the concerns that we talk about are always women and girls problems not women's problems now of course you know there are reasons particularly to do with like for example access to um sanitary yeah, products and I was like going to say, because that starts quite early. Exactly. And so that is, you know, that is a concern for women and girls. Of course, you know, girls can get pregnant you, at, at, you know, age, you know, at an age that's too young. Yes. The Virgin Mary was apparently 12. Exactly. You know, girls can get, 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 girls can get pregnant from a very young age. And of course, you know, there is a reason why um, reproductive programs have to focus on women and girls, but it's it's also to do with the idea that women's health is politically charged mm. and dangerous, and kind of coupling it with women and girls makes it sound a bit more cuddly and a bit less threatening. I mm. think so. That's the, my kind of that's where I come to yeah. this from. Um, how about you? I don't actually deal with it a lot in my work at all. Um, not. I mean, I I suppose it comes in when. Um, I've written about and taught about um, abortion legislation Mm -hmm. and what has always fascinated me. I mean, I have to say, I'd probably lived in this country for 10 years before I realised that abortion here isn't accessed in the same way as it is in Sweden. Mm -hmm. In Sweden, it is on demand. Yes. You go in, you ask for an abortion, they give it to you. You don't need two doctors. You don't mm-hmm. need to have a reason. You just you it it just happens. Well, there is, Whereas in Britain, you have to have two doctors to sign it off. You have to cite some sort of mental health reason for not wanting to go through with it. And in Northern Ireland, it's completely banned. Yeah, and in the Republic of Ireland as well, it's very yes, um, also very kind of strictly controlled access to abortion. And so we I talk mean, about while we talk about the developing world or the world that. Um, the the um, what's it called <laughs> the whole international development um, mm-hmm. ministry ministry for international development yeah. um, the the places that they focus on there is also work potentially that needs to be done in oh, yeah. the British Isles I as mean well. you know there was a lot of when Trump was elected there was a lot of women in in Britain you know were you know, legitimately and understandably outraged about this and particularly about anxieties about the defunding of Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And so, you know, women in Britain started to arrange fundraisers to support, you know, their sisters in America, which is great. But the things, you know, the abortion access, the limitations on abortion access that would have been introduced in America were what those that were currently faced by women in Northern Ireland mm. who are part of the United Kingdom mm. you know, and, and the Republic of Ireland, which is our closest neighbour. Yeah. Um, you know, quite recently there has been a big um, concession by the government. Stella Creasy has been very instrumental in getting um, this process so that Northern Irish women can access abortion on the NHS 
um, in England, Scotland and Wales without having to pay until mm. very recently Northern Irish women, even though their taxes contributed to the NHS, still had to pay about £300 to access an abortion in Britain. Mm. In um, And that's now changed, but they still have to pay to get to Britain yeah. to travel. And of course, you know, if you have... Um, there's all sorts of reasons why you might find it difficult to travel to Britain for an abortion. Mm. But there's also um, the the fact, as you have pointed out, that abortion is part of the criminal code in Britain. And yeah. this is, again, something that I think Diana Johnson, who's an MP for Hull, is trying to uh, amend in Parliament at the moment. You know, why is abortion part of the criminal code? Why is abortion not just part you know tonsillectomies are not part of the criminal code yeah if i want to have a wisdom teeth removed i don't need to get two doctors to say that it's impacting on me mentally or physically Mm. i can't go to prison if i buy painkillers over the internet rather than getting my doctor to prescribe them for me or at least they'd have to be pretty strong painkillers for me to (laughs) risk risk going to prison so why is abortion even governed by the criminal code in britain well it's because of the history of the british state controlling women's bodies and women's access to reproductive justice mm. so yes. you know, when we talk about the british state controlling um british women's bodies it's british men yes in the shape of the state because historically the, the laws are made in a, at a time where women were not adequately represented i mean women aren't adequately represented now no but they were far far fewer women yeah in and Parliament of, when the 1967 abortion law came through. And of course it is a very, very young David Steele, 28-year-old yes. David Steele, who pilots the abortion yes. through through um, House of Commons, for, you know, for which... A Liberal MP who yeah. later became a Social Democrat. Mm-hmm. So, and he's a Lord now, isn't he? I think uh, he's still yeah, around, he's actually. Steele. Yeah, He's still in the House of Lords. Um, so that's how we come to it. I, I mean, part of this is also personal for me because I have... I am a woman who have mm-hmm. had a child. Yes. I've been pregnant. There's lots of lots of women out there who have children who they haven't given birth to, but I've mm-hmm. given birth to my child. Um, and I thought it was quite um, eye-opening to be mm-hmm. pregnant and to be a pregnant woman. I had, I was concerned about the invasion of your privacy when you are visibly pregnant I was worried that people were going to be you always hear about people touching bellies and Mm -hmm. stuff it never happened to me there were like two two friends (laughs) oh is that how you would describe it um (laughs) I have two friends who touched my belly and they are two very close friends Mm -hmm. and they were the only ones who kind of did it um without asking for permission first and I wouldn't have expected them to ask for permission anyway what I noticed was that a lot of men were very sort of caregiving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I was teaching at King's College in London um, when I was first sort of visibly pregnant and the guy in the um, cafe mm-hmm. always gave me two stamps in my loyalty card, one for me and one for the baby. Um, as, as like things, little things like yeah, that yeah. were constantly happening. Did you get a lot of policing? I mean, so in the cafe, for example, if you offered, if you ordered regular coffee rather than decaffeinated coffee, did you get a lot of kind of policing of behaviour? I didn't actually drink caffeine. I, this is the really strange thing about when I was pregnant. I completely lost a taste for coffee, and I'm Swedish. We're meant to be drinking like fifteen cups a day. I really should have realised I was pregnant when I went off coffee. I just thought it was because I had a bit of a sore stomach, which weirdly (laughs) wasn't that weird. Anyway, but um, 
so I, I mostly drank hot chocolate, I have uh-huh. to say, so I didn't really have to deal with that. I also didn't drink alcohol, so I didn't necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't in a situation. Although I did drink quite a lot of tonic water when I was in the pub and stuff. So I suppose some people might have thought that I was drinking a gin and tonic, but I yeah. never had any comments about it. But you didn't have to navigate kind of ordering, ordering, you know, alcohol in, in bars. and then No, although once I had given birth... I have a really terrible hay fever and I needed to get um, hay fever medication, like mm-hmm. over-the-counter stuff. Mm-hmm. But my GP, I went to see her for another thing and she, she said, oh, I'll write you a prescription because uh, pharmacists don't like to give women who breastfeed um, over-the-counter hay fever medication because apparently mm-hmm. antihistamines limit the milk production Mm. which is apparently not true it's like one of these many many myths and half truths that circulate around the world um, of women's pregnant bodies and Mm -hmm. breastfeeding bodies that no one there is no there aren't that many facts and this was quite a startling uh, realization when I was pregnant that you think that you're in the hands of the medical services yeah and that there is information about these things but a lot of it is still like old wife's tales and everyone has, you know, different... I mean, I, when I was in labour coming into the hospital, the first midwife we had looked at me and said, oh, it's a boy. And I was like, no, actually, it's a girl. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we'd known that from the scan. So she was like, oh, really? Your stomach looks like it's a boy. And I was like, this is... A, what This woman <laughs> must be like helping thousands of women give birth every yeah. year. And she still thinks she can tell by the look of the belly what type of child it is. <laughs> Did you read that book, Expecting Better? No, I didn't. But I think if I if I have another child, I might do that. So I think this is it's a, a book by a, a woman who's an economist, and she got so and you know she's American, so it, it's slightly shaped by the the ever so slightly different kind of child child rearing culture or pregnancy culture in the states compared to Britain, but. She was an economist and she got so irritated having to read all of these assertions by people about, you know, new studies that showed this or that was good or not good for pregnant women or for breastfeeding women or whatever, that she has written a book which is based on evidence. Mm. And and I was, you know, this is apparently revolutionary in pregnancy books and books for women that it should be based on evidence. And not only that, but she presents you with the evidence. There are kind of boxes which have key takeaway facts and then you are invited to make your own decision and kind of being given that autonomy. I mean, you know, the kind of classic example, I think, of of policy not being based on evidence is that quite recently, well, not quite recently, in the last few years, the British government advice about how much alcohol women should drink during pregnancy Mm. has gone from drink what is it normally two to three units a week or something which used to be the advice to to drink no alcohol mm. and that's not based on any uh change in research we haven't no. suddenly discovered that a small glass of wine is bad for a baby it's just based on their assumption that women pregnant women are too stupid to understand what a, a few small drinks means mm. and that telling women not to drink at all is more efficient because women are less likely to drink too much and obviously you know, I'm sure in some ways that's quite helpful to them and it enables them to kind of give very clear guidance to pregnant women. But what it completely negates is any sense that women should have an, a life that does not revolve around the baby in their stomach. Yeah. You know, it completely ignores the idea that, you know, even if there is a very small risk, perhaps that is a risk that sometimes some women want to take. Or if there is no risk, then women are, 
you know, why should you sublimate your entire life to the fact that you're pregnant if you want to have a glass of wine? Yes, I think it's really interesting that because this is where women's bodies become public property. Yes. It's, it's not so much that you're giving birth to your child, it's that you're giving birth to the next generation. And mm-hmm. that is, all of a sudden, that child belongs to uh, society. Maybe, yeah. I was going to say the state, but that sounds very harsh. But it's sort that of... That sounds the, very Swedish. The, yes. It's the very... Um, you know, people people definitely feel the right to make yeah. decisions and have opinions about how pregnant women behave. In Sweden... It's, um, I think it's anything that's below 0.5% alcohol Mm -hmm. counts as non-alcoholic. I mean, you basically can't measure Mm -hmm. very low levels of alcohol. Yeah. So there are, so you can drink stuff. And now I can't remember the percentage. So I might look this up and put it on our our show notes. Um, But there are drinks you can drink in Sweden that you can't drink in Britain. You know, you get British beer bottles and they have a a pregnant woman crossed out as a sort of little warning sign, which is just ridiculous. As a symbol as well, it really, really irritates me. But I feel a heavily pregnant woman with a line through her saying, you know, pregnant women, you know, unless, you know, in case you have managed to miss Mm. the constant bombardment of information at you that you mustn't drink or you're an awful mother to be. Here's a picture of a pregnant woman with a line through her. I drank a lot of non-alcoholic beer, and I can really recommend Brew Dogs uh, Nanny <laughs> State, which is an excellent name for a for a, a non-alcoholic beer. But what I thought was more interesting is what comes afterwards. Mm-hmm. So there is this enormous assumption. I mean, it's like everyone pretty much assumes that if you drink alcohol when you breastfeed, you are giving your child alcohol. Mm-hmm. And the actual fact is that. For you to even give your child the smallest dose of alcohol, you basically need to be so drunk that you're comatose. Because you have the same... You know how blood alcohol works yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. for driving. You same, you have the same blood level in all of your body fluids. Mm-hmm. Um, or blood alcohol level in, in all of your body fluids. Mm-hmm. And you can drive, I think in Britain, up to like 0. 0.3 three or something like that it's a lot less in sweden but anyway in order to get uh and that is like 0.03 percent alcohol Mm -hmm. that you're giving your child Mm -hmm. 0.03 percent i mean it's it's like a fruit yogurt will contain the same amount of alcohol but if you're going to be giving your child like 3.5 percent of alcohol Mm -hmm. which is still a very low amount of alcohol you are basically going to be in hospital comatose because you will have had to drink so much. So the idea that women can't drink when they're breastfeeding isn't actually statistically prove or proven or even like a fact. It's to do with um, the implication that women shouldn't be drunk when they're looking after their babies. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of things. I mean, I would never have um, shared a bed with my uh, daughter when she was very young if I had had any alcohol. Because mm-hmm. you are, you know, your judgment is a bit impaired and you yes. might sleep weirdly and, and all of that. But to not drink alcohol and then breastfeed because you are giving your child alcohol mm-hmm. is it's just it's just not true and it seems to me like 97% of the world's population think that you're making your child into an alcoholic it's much worse to drink while you're pregnant because yeah. your child will have probably a slightly higher 
blood alcohol content than you do. Yes, but and of course you have there's specific problems with fetal alcohol syndrome. And exactly, but it, it's completely but... under researched, and we talked about a bit about this in the first episode that a lot of issues to do with women's bodies and health yeah. are under research, and this is another area. Well, so this is it's a very good book to recommend. Actually, mm-hmm. we'll put links specifically with pregnancy and and breastfeeding. Um, the impact of drugs and things like this is is always going to be under-researched because, of course, the way to actually test it would be to give things that could potentially be dangerous to Mm. pregnant women or women who are breastfeeding small babies. And for obvious reasons, it's therefore quite difficult to do this research. Yes. Um, And particularly, you know, in a um, culture after things like, for example, the thalidomide drug scandal Mm. where um you know women had either miscarried or had children with very severe birth defects because of taking a drug that was supposed to prevent morning sickness Mm. um and in fact you know caused caused enormous kind of problems and pain for these for these women um you know it, it it for obvious reasons it's very hard to do this research on pregnant women and so a lot of the time when drugs are when it says for example on medication it's not been proven safe Mm. All that means is they haven't been able to do a test on a pregnant woman, a woman, mm. because you know most pregnant women probably would not want to take part in medical tests that might theoretically possibly harm their baby. Yeah, I mean there is clearly there is we could do a whole podcast episode just on breastfeeding. Um, yeah, we could do a whole podcast episode just just on pregnancy, and I'm sure we'll, we will revisit these topics. I think. Yes. We talked in the first episode about kind of messy bodies, and obviously, you know, pregnancy and breastfeeding are messy. They involve fluids. Mm. Uh, they a lot of fluids. They make you um, they make you kind of visibly female in the workplace in a way that is, I think, almost. Pregnancy it, is interesting because it doesn't actually contain that many many. Fluids no, that's true. Actually, as I said, it contained not not right until the not right until the last moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the idea that you know, actually, for a long time in in British history, for example, again to go back to my research, British political history, to be a female body in the workplace was already to be slightly unprofessional. To be pregnant is sort of rubbing people's nose in the fact that you are a woman of reproductive age, you mm. know, which is desperately unprofessional. <laughs> but there's also the sense that sort of all of women's health is, is kind of cloaked in this air of secrecy. I mean, to the extent that, for example, the other day I got completely lost in a chemist because I couldn't remember the euphemism that's used for tampons. <laughs> and I was wandering around thinking, I'm looking for ages for like feminine hygiene or <laughs> san- sanitary products. Like the idea that this is sort of for sort of those, uh, you know, for your disgusting lazy business, mm. sort of dark, dank cave or something. You know. Yeah. That's something that I found really weird when I moved here because, you know. Does moving, it just say tampons in Sweden? Sweden? Yeah. And they, you know, they're in the supermarket next to, I don't know, dog food or something. It's like. <laughs> You know, and the idea that you can't send your partner out to get them for you. Yeah. That's also partly to do with men being stupid and not being un- able to understand the, the various colour variations that explain what size a, they are. I have a friend it's, once it's, who, um, I won't identify her or her partner, but who was sent out to buy tampons and brought back super tampons because he thought that that was a kind of quality grade <laughs> so he was like oh I brought you the super ones and she had to explain about menstrual flow which oh. is maybe not a conversation you always want to have with anybody really but I think it's well it's, I mean you know it's a perfectly reasonable conversation to have but you know perfectly maybe not reasonable. one that she had planned to have I, I find this kind of British prudishness mm-hmm. about bodies in general but women's bodies in particular perhaps because that's why I experience I mean yeah. having so having given birth in mm-hmm. a room full admittedly of women they were all 
all the doctors and nurses um, were women. There was mm-hmm. two men in the room when I was giving birth. One of them was my partner, and the other one was a guy with a bucket who had the job to clean up. <laughs> um, but they still went through this amazing faff when they needed to change me out of the gown I'd given birth mm-hmm. in, which was quite blood stain. let's be <laughs> honest. Uh, that they were, you know, trying to cover me up. They had this whole, Mm -hmm. it was like some sort of dance routine almost with how they moved the gown. And I was like still in like stirrups with my legs up and my (laughs) legs are reaching exposed. And I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. And also I'm on a maternity ward where I will, you know, undress to attempt breastfeeding in the next half an hour. So I mean, there's ever a time not to be prudish about nudity. Yes, but I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we, we have a few listeners in Sweden. Maybe someone can let us know if if it's the same there. I really doubt it. I mean, I mean, my mother is. Um, my grandfather was German. So my mother is is half German and, and was brought up uh, spending a lot of summers in Germany. And so that meant that I grew up in a, in a house which had a very um, naked approach to life, in, <laughs> which I did, again, as a child, did not realise really. The two things I didn't realise were specific to Germany um, and thought were universal experiences were I thought that everyone spent a lot of time naked at home. And <laughs> I also thought that um, traditional weekend breakfast was black coffee, rolls, ham and cheese. I, had, um, I didn't You're have, very continental, Charlotte. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a, a fry up for a, for a long time as a, as a child. And, but, that you know... The British nudity is so taboo, and and I find it also say. as a, as a Scandinavian coming into British gyms where mm-hmm. people go to the sauna in their swimming costumes, and I'm like, you can't do that. It actually releases toxic gases if you've been to a swimming pool. You can't see. So yeah, I don't I don't do that. I don't go to saunas in Britain unless well, you know, they're run by Finn or something. <laughs> but uh. <laughs> that kind of that kind of anxiety and prudishness about and and sort of you know the the sort of obvious point which is that menstrual blood is the only blood which is not like it, it's not a sign that something's wrong mm. but like anything else you know if you have a nosebleed or you'll cut your finger or you get shot like that blood should be you know at least vaguely traumatic that that's a symbol of something bad that's happened right yeah. but menstrual blood is just a normal thing and it, yeah. and it's the only thing that's taboo it's the only type of blood yeah, that there's a taboo about, but it's yeah. the only one that is not a symptom that something awful has happened. No, in fact, actually, for lots of people, it's a symptom that something bad hasn't happened. You exactly, know. and that you are healthy. Mm. And yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if there isn't anything with the male body that isn't that is as well, taboo. I mean, I mean, I said in the last episode they don't know where their prostate is, but it's no, not exactly. exactly taboo, is I it? I mean, the kind of taboo about it is to such an extreme that I think quite a while ago, when I I think it was at university, so when I was in my early twenties, I remember a maker of sanitary towels releasing and tampons as well. I think releasing tampons and sanitary towels that had special. Uh, you know they're wrapped in kind of plasticky paper so they Mm. rustle right and being wrapped in a special sort of paper that didn't rustle so that when you're in a toilet cubicle people wouldn't be able to hear that that's what you were doing oh my god because god forbid other women know that you're changing apart from anything else british toilet public toilets do tend to be segregated by sex so it would at most be probably women you had never met (laughs) like the idea that that's something you would have to hide and but then again, I remember being young and working in an open plan office and having to kind of work out how you got tampons to the toilet. Oh, yes. You know, sort of walking across. And always sort of I still have this little, little um, it's like a little 
I suppose maybe like a little wallet, maybe a big wallet, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that has. I mean, that I came yeah. through with the magazine once. I have a makeup. You know, I carry a makeup bag around with me that has all sorts of things in. So I'm often kind oh. of wandering around with that. But you know, when you were, I mean, being about twenty two or twenty three in an office and and being kind of petrified of trying to working out how to yeah. get this across the across the office floor and always inevitably kind of being waylaid by a male boss the the hedge fund I worked in was particularly bad for this I would inevitably <laughs> always run into a male boss and have to have a conversation about but see I remember being like 12 and trying to work out how to do that in school and I think that was in school like, mean, everyone just in Britain everyone just carries their rucksacks around with them wherever oh they yeah no we didn't in Sweden we had a classroom that we were in all day you take your jacket and your shoes off and you go in it's very civilized you take your shoes off yes at school oh my yes. god Sweden is this well up until you were about 13 and okay, then you no, start no, walking I mean... around with your shoes and then the teachers used to tell us off for, well not me I didn't spit on the floor but lots of people spat on the floor in school and the the whole rationale among the students who did it was because the teachers would ask why why do you, you don't spit on the floor in your own house and they would be like no but we don't wear our shoes indoors in our own house either this is basically outdoors this yeah, is a, that's a tangent. Really, <laughs> a very odd, an odd vision into what life in Sweden is like. Every like every time we record a podcast, I learn something new about Sweden. Yes, and hopefully our listeners do as well. Yes, maybe I should be some sort of cultural weird Sage. culture ambassador. Um, I think. Well, I, did I say that we were going to talk about Beyonce when we started this podcast? I used mm-hmm. a few images, and one of them was of a massively pregnant Beyonce. Yes. She took photos dressed up like Carmen Miranda. Yes. Um, when she was pregnant with the twins. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's quite interesting. I think she's had very public... She's managed very well to hide her pregnancies until she was ready to to yeah. talk about them, despite the fact that there's been thousands of times of speculation when she yeah. hasn't been pregnant. So I think it's really interesting that she has exposed her pregnant belly the way she has. Yes. But it's always... With her own creative control. Well, it, that's what's particularly interesting to me as well, her control over her image like that. Because, I mean, for example, there's a very famous um, front cover, magazine front cover with Demi Moore Yeah, being Vanity Fair in like 91 or 92 or something. But the whole thing there is that, you know, that... I mean, it was, a, it was a really interesting image, but it's someone else. It's someone else's idea being published on someone else's magazine to sell it's a someone else's magazine. It's, yeah. Exactly. Whereas Beyonce, you know, it's... It's really interesting because she always publishes these images um, in lots of spaces, but on her personal Instagram mm. as well. Which And her personal Instagram is a mixture of um, selfies, professional photographs, and then pictures that she's clearly like made Jay-Z take of her, mm-hmm. which are my favourites. That like She's <laughs> often kind of standing in a, in a lift or something and she's made Jay-Z take pictures of her. Um, but so it does something interesting to the idea of the gaze there. Yeah. So you know that image obviously wasn't a selfie; that was a photo shoot, professional photo shoot. But you got the sense from it. I think it was David Bailey actually. Yeah, so incredibly you, high tech. <laughs> but you get the sense from it. But that, that that's her creative control. That's her way of mm. releasing this image. And I mean, again, I think we'll have a future episode talking about celebrity and women. Yeah. Um. But the kind of continual speculation about female pregnancy. Uh, among celeb, you know, pregnancy mm. among female celebrities is incredible. And pregnancy there was some among women... the female population. Oh, I've... absolutely. It's I like mean... the only time I wasn't worried that someone was would assume that I was pregnant was when I was actually visibly pregnant. At least it takes the. And then I was a little bit worried that people she? would think that I was massively, you know, had eaten a lot of cake, but I had a I had a very pronounced stomach. 
I am, um, yes, I was talking to women about, you know, we've talked before about clothes in the workplace and we were saying, you know, a lot of his favourite sa- uh, shapeless sack dresses for work. Mm. Always a big fan of a shapeless sack dress, but the obviously issue with this is that it does lead, it makes it look a little bit like you were concealing the early stages of pregnancy. <laughs> um, and, you know, I have one shapeless sack dress, which is very dear to me, but does occasionally lead to me being offered a seat on the chair. Oh, yes. Which, you know, I is... once had a, almost got into an argument with two elderly women <laughs> who I think were from Spain. I was wearing a very unflattering, very comfortable dress. And one of them was constantly, like, offering me a seat, mm-hmm. like, nonstop. And I was declining the seat because, you know, I was not pregnant and I could, and they were in their late 70s or 80s or something. And she just wouldn't let go. So when they got up to get off the tube, she was like motion for me to go and sit down. And I was like, oh, I give up. I'm just going to sit down now. But I really, I really like the um, baby on board badges. I think they're brilliant. I really wish that there wasn't an exclamation mark at the end of it. This is like the the issues I had about public pregnancy is mm-hmm. that yes, ecstatic, exciting, like very childlike cheery. cheerfulness. Yeah. I just like no, I have a baby in my stomach and I need to sit down, please. I ha- do have quite a few female friends. So for those of you who are not in London and don't use the Transport for London system, the baby on board badge is a badge that you can get from a doctor in london and i think you can also pick them up from tube station any tube station they have them um, at the barriers normally which is really great and it's a badge that sort of it, it's um looks like the tfl rondelle so the underground mm. symbol but it says baby on board we'll put a photo up I yes think. um and it's so that people can offer you it's supposed to take away first of all it sort of signals to people that you do need to sit down but it also maybe takes away the is she or isn't she anxiety in the early oh, yeah. stages of pregnancy so it lets people know you are pregnant and would appreciate to see it because a lot of people I know have worn them, like, when they've been quite early stages of pregnancy, maybe when they're having morning sickness or they just are not steady on their feet and they kind of think they need to sit down, you know, maybe when you obviously don't necessarily need to wear it when you're nine months pregnant because it's kind of obvious. The Depending only, on the season. Yes. The only um, the only problem I've ever kind of heard people say is that it has sometimes outed them to colleagues as being pregnant when you kind yes. of blithely wander into work in the morning wearing a baby on board badge yes i didn't wear one for the first few weeks um and then was recommended that i did because and the person who recommended that i wear one uh said this is probably when you need to wear one because this is when you're feeling very weak and and and, you don't faint and you don't look pregnant um so i put it on a scarf and i then made sure that the scarf was like inside out when when I so I didn't have to remove the badge but that was that took an enormous amount of fiddling until I realized that that was a very good system Mm -hmm. I mean I feel for anyone who has to out their pregnancy before they're ready um and there are various reasons why you wouldn't want to yeah I mean in Britain you technically only have to tell your boss that you're pregnant 15 weeks before you're going to go on you you tell them (laughs) quite you know actually very close to your due date yeah um, and and for many women you know that's obviously quite a long time after you are visibly pregnant mm. title, and title and you know for lots of people quite a long time after you've had to maybe take time off work had morning sickness had some antenatal impo- appointments had scans mm. and things like this so but legally that's the point at which you're required to tell them so that might be for, for many women they might wait for the legal moment yeah to, to and you know i had an incredibly visible pregnancy mm-hmm. i think a lot of women don't my aunt for example you know she she showed as much like the day before she gave birth to one of my cousins she showed as much as i did probably when i was three months pregnant or four months pregnant well, so there was there was no hiding away from me from me also my daughter is born in june so yes it was <laughs> yes if you're pregnant in the winter months and can just hide it all under a, a jumper that's maybe easier yeah 
Shall I? Um, I've got a poem. Oh, excellent! Shall I read my poem? So it's another Marge Piercy poem. Uh, who we I also kind of um, quoted from when uh, we were talking a little bit about harassment. Um, and it's uh, a poem called Something to Look Forward to, and it's actually about the menopause. Um, it's I'm not going to read it out again. Obviously, it's quite a long poem, but she um, talks about periods. It's a poem about menstruating. Um, and then it has this lovely kind of section. My friend Penny at 12, being handed a napkin the size of an ironing board cover, cried out, do I have to do this from now until I die? No, said her mother, it stops in middle age. Good, said Penny, there's something to look forward to. <laughs> and she finishes the poem by saying that when time stops that leak permanently, I will burn my last tampons like votive candles. So Excellent. actually throughout the poem, she's quite she has quite, quite powerful imagery about menstruation whilst, you know, being very clear that it would be quite nice for it not to happen. Yes. To not to have to deal with it. So. I think we all feel like that. That was one of the bonuses of being pregnant <laughs> for 18 months of not having to worry about where the sanitary towels or tampons were at. And then it all just starts back up again. But that's a very positive note to end the podcast is. on, isn't it? Do we Should have we do- recommendations? We have recommendations. We're recommending our books to read during winter, aren't we? Yes, we are. Um, now, my book to read during winter is not a very wintry book but it's a book that I just find immensely comforting. Um, and it's Heartburn by Nora Ephron. Oh, great. Um, which I've been, like, if anyone follows me on Twitter, I periodically reread this and then just tweet about it. <laughs> I love Nora Ephron. I think she's wonderful. Heartburn is a kind of, as she points out, thinly fictionalised is only ever applied to books by women. Mm. No one ever says that Philip Roth's ridiculous meanderings about academia are not are thinly fictionalised. But... She, you know, it's a thinly fictionalised account of the end of her second marriage. Um, and I'm not going to spoil any of it for those of you who haven't read it, but it is absolutely fantastic. Maybe we should do a book club oh, we where we all read it. Uh, my recommendation is uh, Kazu Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day, which mm-hmm. I was... It's, it's been, like, one of my three favourite books um, for probably... 20 years <laughs> uh, we read it in school and I actually got to do exams on the remains of the day Ooh. which was nice um, it's I just it's an excellent book it's so well crafted it's the story of a very emotionally repressed butler in a rapidly changing world uh, who's realising page by page that he's he's not he's, he's run out of emotions basically mm-hmm. he can't show them but they are there. They're sort of bubbling underneath the surface. There's all sorts of things about Britain in the interwar and, and yeah. post-war era. But it is it is seriously such a well-written mm. book they completely disappear into. And Kazu Ishiguro got the Nobel Prize for Literature Yes, this it's year. a topical recommendation. It's a very topical recommendation. Um, so he should be giving a Nobel Prize uh, lecture as well, which oh, would yes. be quite interesting. Maybe he's already done it. I don't know. Oh, um, could be around the time that this podcast goes out. Maybe. Yes, I think it will be. Um, he's he has written in the Guardian about how he wrote the remains of the day, mm. and that's a really interesting bit of um, self reflection on writing, which is interesting for anyone who does any writing for their work. Yeah. Um, it's definitely sitting down and crafting time. So yes, the remains of the day by Kazu Ishiguro. Okay, so yeah. you can uh, you know follow us on Twitter uh, at TNKPod, follow us individually, watch out for our newsletter, go to our website, and have uh, a great time till you hear from us next. Okay, bye. Bye. bye.